Thank you, thank you, thank you. And I wanted to ask by a sign of applause, how many of you all are fans of the Food Network? Anyone? Rachel Ray, Bobby Flay, Chick-fil-A, all the A's. I mean, I was staying at, uh, is it Windsor? I feel like I'm at the castle. Uh, and Rasul here, was he, he's also staying there, and he's on campus, and he's uh, pre-screening his movie June 19th, which is incredible. And he busted me this morning because I actually traveled here BYOB. I brought my own bacon. <laughs> so... I know, it's a little much, but, but I, you know, I think when we look to the original foodie, I think God was the original foodie. I mean, from the opening of Genesis, laying it out like a five-star buffet, to the closing in Revelation, where we will be promised the invitation to the biggest, best banquet of all time. But some time ago, I became fascinated with food in the Bible. And with the literal hundreds, if not thousands, of mentions, I knew that I needed to narrow my search. And so I identified six different foods of the Bible, and I sought out the people who process and plant and procure them. Not large manufacturing, technological companies, rather people who had a more artisanal flair, who cared very much about the quality of the soil, the care of the animals. And this journey took me to go pluck figs in Madera, California, California with the nation's largest fig farmer. I went overseas and fished in the Galilee. I even tracked down the world expert on ancient grains who happens to be a professor at Yale Seminary. I cold called him, I introduced myself, and I invited myself to his house to bake bread for an afternoon. <laughs> because that's what normal people do. And serial killers. I even tracked down a man in McKinney, Texas, who was a butcher who called himself the Meat Apostle and graduated from his Steakology 101 course. Yum, yum. But with each of these individuals, I opened up the Bible and I asked, how did you read these passages, not as theologians, but in light of what you do every day? And their answers changed the way I read the Bible forever. Time and time again, I found myself asking, how did I grow up in the church? How have I studied the scriptures? How have I listened to so many sermons and downloaded so many podcasts and nobody has told me these things? And this began and became the journey for a book and Bible study called Taste and See, Discovering God Among Butchers, Bakers, and Fresh Food Makers. And so this morning in our time together, I just wanted to highlight two of the foods that I explored and provide just a little bit of background on each one of them. And the first food is so common, especially this time of year, that it graces many of our plates, sometimes at breakfast. And that food is the grape. Now, if you start looking for grapes and vines and vineyards throughout the Bible, you will discover that there are nearly 500 references. That shortly after Noah got off of the ark, he fell off of the wagon. He planted a vineyard and he drank too much. We also discover that some of God's most famous leaders, including David and Uzziah and Isaiah, all had vineyards or had people who took care of their vineyards from, for them, which is a little bit intriguing because the Bible makes it explicitly clear that drunkenness is forbidden. So then why would God use this vine and vineyard imagery to communicate his word? 
Well, what's fascinating is modern archaeologists have found that in the ancient plots of land in Israel where the people live, there are often traces of vines in their backyards. So it would kind of like be God using the tomato plants or the green bean plants that we grow in order to communicate his heart to us. But of all of the mentions of vine and vineyard and wine imagery and grapes, I think none is more potent than that found in John chapter 15, beginning in verse 1, where Jesus takes on this imagery for himself and he says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I, I am the vine. You, you are the branches. You, and he who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. Nada zilchamundo. So to better understand this passage, I traveled to Napa Valley, California, to spend time with a boutique vintner by the name of Christoph. This was not a man who managed thousands of acres of grapes. He had parcels as small as five and 10 acres. And as we began to dive into this passage, we really explored two main themes. And the first theme is that of pruning. Now, I don't know what you guys think about when somebody talks about pruning, particularly spiritual pruning, maybe within a Christian context or church service, but when I think about pruning, I kind of have an image in my head of something like this. <laughs> Some of you are thinking, how did she get that through TSA? <laughs> I have my ways. Checked baggage. But... I kind of have this image that if I am a vine that is growing up before the Lord, then God's going to come and he's going to prune that out and that out. He's going to say, man, there's an area of sin. Whack, whack. And I don't know what that's doing. Whack, 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 whack. And by the time he's done, I will be this short little stubby thing and maybe, just maybe, God can do something good through me. And when I described this to Christoph, he looked at me and he said, that is not how we prune vines in Napa Valley. He said, if you want to prune a vine in Napa Valley, you actually want to use something like this. And I looked at these shears and I thought, they're so small. Like, I mean, that could like give my husband a pedicure. They're so little. <laughs> and he began to describe how throughout the growing season, he will walk through every line and touch every cluster of grapes four to five times. And as he's going through, he's cutting off just a little bit of a leaf, just a little bit of a branch, so that every grape in that cluster not only receives the right amount of sunlight, but the right amount of air for maximum fruitfulness and maximum flavor. When he described that, I thought, God, if that is what you mean by pruning, then have your way with me. Can we all say that out loud? Have your way with me. One more time. Have your way with me. Because he is the master vintner. But when we look in this passage, what we discover, that there's also another theme that emerges, and that is the theme of abiding. Abiding. 
And growing up in the church, I always kind of had this picture that if a vine was growing up and there were branches and there were grapes, that as long as everything stayed connected, kind of like as long as I stayed plugged into Jesus, then everything would be okay. And Christoph looked at me and we started to talk about the art and science of viticulture, of growing grapes. And he began to describe how when you want to grow really good grapes, you actually don't go down to the hardware store like I was planning and buy some seeds. You actually use the shoots of previous vines. And anybody in here who may be involved or called to church planting, or starting a new prophet, or starting something new in the midst of this generation at this time, listen up. Because you use the shoots of previous vines, and you go through the first year and you plant those shoots, and they will start to grow up. Year two, at the end of that year, you cut them back. Year two, they grow up a little bit further, but you go through at the end of that year and you cut them back. Year three comes and those vines start to grow up so tall that they're actually produce grapes, but you don't take them. You go through and you cut them back. And it won't be until year four that those vines will grow up. They will produce grapes. And at that point, the vintner will be able to pick them and process them. But did you know it won't be until year seven that they get to taste the very first fruit of their labor? And because of the high cost of land in Napa Valley, they won't reach a financial break-even point until year 16, 18, or 20. When Christoph described that, suddenly I had a shift in my own heart. Because I don't know about you guys, but I know I and some of you look at our lives and we, we ask the question, God, why am I not more fruitful? Why am I not more productive? Why does the season seem to be about nothing? What, what are you going to do? There's nothing here. Why have I been working at this so long and I'm not seeing the fruit that I want and I need? And it's like the Holy Spirit whispers to me and to you, do you not know, have you not heard that the fruit that I want to produce in your life, it may not be for another two or four or six years or 10 or 20, but if you will remain faithful to answer the call to abide in me, I am going to bring a harvest through your life that you cannot imagine. To which we say, have your way with me. All together, have your way with me. But that invitation to abide, abide is not just what is going on beneath the surface of the soil. It's also what's going on above the soil. You see, I thought that if I wanted to grow really great grapes, that I would go down to the hardware store and I would buy one of those big bags of miracle Grow soil, you know, that rich, lush stuff where you stick your fingers in and it grows like three inches instantly, not creepy at all. And again, Christoph is like, stick to writing. You're not on point with any of your guesses. And he said, Margaret, if you want to grow world-class grapes, the kind that can compete on the global stage. You do not want lush, rich soil. You actually want rocky, difficult soil. Did you know that there is a winery over in France called La Chateau Lafitte? And they actually grow their grapes in 75% gravel. 
And there are days the vintner will go down and he will inspect the vines and he will say it is not rocky enough. And he will take a rock and he will place it next to the vine because he knows that it is that rock, it is that hard area, it is that stone that will force the roots to grow deep, to grow stronger, to reach levels of mineral content and water that they would not otherwise, to produce more vigor in the vine that will eventually affect the fruit that is being produced. And I don't know about you guys, but when I heard that, I thought I know that in my life, I have rocks, I have stones, I have difficult areas, I have those places much like you, that if we have not prayed a dozen times or a hundred or a thousand, it's like that stone, that hard place, it does not move. And yet it's in that that the Spirit of God says to me and to you, have you not known, have you not heard that that stone, that rock, that difficult area is the very thing that I will use to produce the flavor of my son, Jesus Christ, in you? To which we say, have your way with me. He is the master vintner. The other food that I wanted to just highlight in our time together today is one that is pretty common, and I know some of you don't like it, and so it's gonna hurt my heart, but it is the olive. And growing up as a kid at Thanksgiving, there would be a bowl on the table, and all these black olives would be in there. Did anybody else have that? Okay, yeah, all nine of us, excellent. But it was so fun because you could stick your fingers in each of the olives and you could have a puppet show, yes, at the table, and it was the one time you didn't get yelled at all year for playing with your food. Exactly. But I would also say that those of you who don't like olives, I get it, but if I were to take a hot loaf of artisanal, perhaps gluten-free, the proper grain, and, and bring it out of the oven and have some olive oil with some garlic and some spices that are fresh, you might, you might consider those mentions of olive and olive oil in the Bible. If you actually look in the text, it, 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 you'll find almost 300 mentions throughout the Bible, of olives, olive trees, olive leaves. But I grew up, I didn't really have any olive trees. Like, I didn't grow around them. I, I wasn't in that kind of environment in Florida or North Carolina or Colorado. And, and so I decided I need to understand an olive tree. So my husband and I traveled to a remote island off the coast of Croatia where this family had been bringing in an olive harvest from their family's olive trees for hundreds of years. We arrived and our hostess, Natalia, greeted us in her little European car that's the size of a jelly bean and we've got our huge American luggage, right? And we're like, okay. And so we stuff it in and we go and we spend the night at our house. And the next morning we got up and we started driving these roads deep onto the island. And all of a sudden we made one particular turn and it was like all of them in all directions. They were everywhere. We kept driving and eventually we reached a place on the side of the road where it was nothing there, but she just pulled over. And we got out of the car and she opened up the trunk and she showed us the tools that we would be using. And it was a couple of beat up old white five gallon 
buckets and a couple of old blue tarps. And we began making our way up the side of the mountain. And as we're climbing, I began to notice that there was one particular tree and it was like rustling. And I was like, bears, lions, oh my, what is there? And all of a sudden, this height challenged 70-something woman comes down, and she's got a cardigan, and it's misbuttoned, and she looks at me, and she goes, Marguerite! And I was like, I feel like I'm caught up in an Italian wedding movie. Mama! <laughs> and so she starts showing us how to pick the olives. And the first thing that is done is you take that blue tarp, and you put it underneath the tree, and you kind of wrap all the way around it so if any of the olives drop, they're caught and not lost. And then she took that five-gallon bucket and she reached up the branch and she began massaging each of those olives and they went pop, pop, pop into the bucket. And I was like, easy peasy, we got this. And so I take the bucket and I reach out and I'm like, and it's like, like leaves and little branches are breaking off and she looks at me afterwards and she goes. <laughs> and what Natalia explained was that if I break the wrong branches or I hurt it, then it will impede next year's harvest. And so I don't know exactly when it happened. I don't know if it was like day two or day three we caught on. But it started to click in that mama thought that if she would just speak loud enough in Croatian, <laughs> that we would understand. And at one point, several days into this whole journey, all of a sudden, she comes up to my six foot eight husband and she just starts screaming at him with all of her might in Croatian. And then all of a sudden she stops in what looks like mid-sentence and wraps her arms around my husband's leg. And that's when we discovered that Mama loved Leif the most because he was the tallest and could reach the branches that no one else could. But there is something that happens when you start picking olives six, eight, ten hours a day. Your lower back starts to hurt. The calf muscles tighten up. Your shoulder just clamps down. And as you're picking, there are all these small cuts that happen on your hands as you're brushing against all the various branches. And yet when we came home at night, it looked like our hands had been soaking at a world-class spa. You see, God designed the olive with anti-inflammatory, antioxidants, antibacterial properties so that just as we are doing the work, the healing is soaking in. Just as you on the front lines of serving and giving and going, as you are doing the work, God's healing is soaking in. But if you look at the prominence of olives, and particularly olive oil in the Hebrew text, you will see that it pops up time and time again in the context of anointing. And often those who were anointed were the priests and the kings. And when they were anointed, the Psalms tell us that it wasn't like today where a little dab will do you, but rather the oil would flow down their heads and down their cheeks and over their beards and all over their bellies. And in the radiance of that, the life would often catch it, representing the very favor of God. And what were the kings called to do by God? They were called to bring healing to the land. And so we should not be surprised that when Christ comes that he is called the anointed one. And the night of his arrest, where does he go? He could have gone anywhere. 
gone to the house of Lazarus or Martha and Mary or retreated up a mountainside like I did so often. And instead, he goes to an X marks the spot kind of place, the Garden of Gethsemane. And as he enters in as the anointed one, he goes through the olive trees, which had long been planted. How do we know they'd long been planted? Because an olive tree doesn't produce its first droops until usually year 10 or 15. And as he enters into that olive yard, he finds himself likely in the center where the olive press is. Now, an olive press is two large stones stacked atop each other. So here he is in the Garden of Gethsemane, meaning the Garden of the Olive Press, as the anointed one, surrounded by olive trees, and he's likely in the center. Why were, in antiquity, why were the olive presses in the center? Because people were efficient, just like they are today. And those olives get super heavy when they're ripe. And so they would put them in the center so it was the smallest distance to have to travel. And so here is Jesus, the anointed one, at the garden of the olive press, surrounded by olive trees. And that ancient press was two white stones that were, that were on top of each other. And as they twisted, the olives would ri- wrestle and ride under the weight until the oil dripped out. And here is Jesus, the anointed one, also writhing and wrestling under the weight. And he is not dripping oil, he is dripping blood for the weight of the cross that he will face. And yet in that place, he says, not my will, but yours be done. And he rises up and he endures the cross and three days later, he rises with resurrection and healing power in his midst. And so we should not be surprised when our friend James, chapter 5, verse 14, asks this question, are any of you sick? Are any of you struggling with your mental health? Receiving diagnoses from doctors about your mind or your body that you you never wanted to hear? Living in a low-grade chronic pain from an injury years ago? feeling it in your lower back, your spine, the rashes or hives that break out? Are any of you sick? You should call for the elders of the church to come and pray over you, anointing you with oil in the name of the Lord. Why did God choose oil, and particularly olive oil, as a symbol of healing in instead of anything else? I mean, think about it. There are about a billion olive trees on planet Earth, and 900 million are located in the Middle East. And God could have chosen anything. I mean, he could have chosen milk, or he could have chosen mud. I mean, Jesus even did that. I think God chose the olive and the olive oil, because God as creator knew that the healing properties were embedded in. But I also think he did it because he wanted us to remember what Christ did and endured for us. A number of years ago, I was diagnosed with a um, really aggressive form of cancer, and cancer comes in all sizes and forms. 
And some people kind of get, and I'm not ma making light at all, but they're kind of like a mini meal. And I got the supersized one, the five surgeries, the radiation, the chemotherapy. I was in my 30s, and it turned our world upside down. And any of you who have been in crisis, whether it's a painful divorce, a custody battle, maybe it's something with your bodies or financial collapse, you know that, that in the midst of that, even among a well-meaning community of believers, that crisis point becomes the center of everything. So everybody's always asking you about it and the updates, and it can get so exhausting. And then the demands of the crisis, I mean, going to the medical appointments, filing the paper, all the things that becomes the center of your life. And I remember as I was struggling this, I sensed the Holy Spirit pop a thought into my head one day that was not my own. And it simply asks this, you can cling to the crisis or you can cling to Christ, but you do not have arms big enough for both. I looked and I said, God, I want, I want to cling to you, but I don't know how. I don't know how. I can barely walk across my living room right now. Like, how? And that idea from Jeremiah about putting a pin in the fact that God has a hope and a future came to mind. And I thought, but how do I do that? How do I do that when I'm so sick? And one day I was sitting in my living room and I remember looking around at the 1980s peachy walls. And I thought, man, what if we touch something up? And so my sweet husband went out and bought a gallon or two of paint and began painting. And all of a sudden in our community of believers, we had something else to talk about other than the disease. And so I remember looking at my husband Leif as a caretaker, and you who have fulfilled that role, you know it is so exhausting and it is so much. But I looked at him and I said, honey, what do you want to do to put a pin in the fact that God has a hope and a future for you? And he thought for a while and he said, you know, I have always wanted to swim Alcatraz. And I was like, buddy, the goal is to stay alive. Like, what? <laughs> But he starts training, and he's swimming, and all of a sudden the people in our community all of a sudden have something else to talk about than the disease. How's your swim going? How are you feeling about it? How's your time? and getting stronger? How's your endurance? And so finally that race day came, and we went out to San Francisco, and he went and he swam that race, and he finished fourth in his age category. I know. That's what I thought. And he was like, mm-mm, I'm going to keep swimming this until I place in the top three. I was like, okay, buddy, you know there's na 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 na. <laughs> so he goes back and he swims again, and it is year two, and he finishes, and guess what he finished? Fourth. <laughs> we go back for year three, guess what he finishes? It is year five. And I'm like, please, baby Jesus, we need a miracle here. And he goes out, and he swims, and he finishes first in his age category. But that wasn't the win. That wasn't the real win. You see, the first night when he arrived, he went out to check the water and the current and the wind, and he noticed two ladies who were sitting over here, and he just went up to talk to them, and like I follow behind, like, I'm the wife, I'm the wife, this isn't weird. And, and they're like, are you guys swimming? And he's like, she's, they're like, no, but our friend is. And so this woman comes out of the water, and they're like, this is Leif. And he, she looks at me, and she goes, you're Margaret Feinberg, and I've done one of your Bible studies. I was like, interesting. So we start talking to her, and Leif takes her under his wing, because, like, it's, it's a lot out there, right? It's a lot. And says, I'll meet you in the morning. We'll walk to the ferry together. Then we'll swim back. Like, 
Taste and really, really sweet. And so that, that night, Leif said, you know, I brought a copy of your book, Taste and See, and I just, I, I just, I feel like there's somebody I'm supposed to give it to, and I feel like it's, it's her. And I was like, cool, cool. So the next morning we go, and, and Leif says, you know, here's what you do. Here's how on this day, how you navigate all of the conditions here. But also, I just felt like led to bring one book here, and it's for you. And the woman all of a sudden just starts weeping. And I'm like, girlfriend, that is going to fog your goggles, and that's going to be a problem for this one. <laughs> and she begins to describe how the year before she found out that her husband was cheating. It was in a painful divorce and a custody battle that got so ugly. And someone in the middle of that came up to her and said, what do you like to do for exercise? And she said, well, I like to swim. And so she started swimming 15 minutes, 20 minutes, 25 minutes, building up. And one day she woke up and said, man, I got to put, like, I got to find a way to put a pin in hope. And so I'm going to go swim Alcatraz. And I looked at her and I just said, man, I, I just need to let you know, like, 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 this was not an accident. Like, this was, this was something the Holy Spirit was doing. And I want you to know that my husband brought one book to give to one person, and that is you. Because God knows your name, he knows your number, he knows exactly what you're going through, and he is with you. And there's more boo-hoo, and I'm like, fogging the goggles. <laughs> but I share that because for us, that was five years apart. Five years apart. And some of you are in the hot mess of it right now. You're the one who has received the news that no one wants to hear, either about you or your loved one or a family member or a friend. And, and, and if it's you, it just it, you know that that crisis can become the center point so easily that everybody wants to help, but they're all touching on that when you need something different. And, and if you are in that situation, can I encourage you to put a pin in the fact that God has a hope for you? It, it may be something as simple as buying a can of paint. It may be taking an overnight with a friend and doing a sleepover. It, it may be signing up to do something once you graduate, but would you fight back with joy and put a pin in the the fact God has a hope for you. And there are others of you who maybe you are one year or two year or three year or five years or even more out. And can you become a rally person for the person who's in the midst of it? Can you come alongside of this, them and, and help them find something that brings life? Maybe it's a can of paint. It doesn't have to be expensive. Maybe it's going somewhere, doing something, attending a particular conference, going to a retreat, but come alongside as rally people in the kingdom of God. Because God's healing presence is not just meant to flow to you, it is meant to flow through you. Why does God speak through such common elements as food stuff, getting his hands dirty in the soil of our earth? I think one, because he wants to know us to know how near he is and how much he has for us and be reminded at every meal of his presence and his sustaining power and his provision. But I think a second reason is that there is no single metaphor or image that can contain the wonder and the beauty and the majesty of God. So I'm going to invite the worship team up. But I just want to encourage you, do not shy away from responding to the call of God and the pruning he is doing in your life that will make you more fruitful. 
Answer the call to abide in him, not just for today, but for the long haul. And remember that like the olive, that God's healing wants to seep, not just into you, but through you. In Jesus' name.